Hi everyone, this is Yin and welcome to Growth From Failure. I wanted to create this show to highlight extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up, but with a slight twist. I'll have conversations with people from a variety of professions, from investors to entrepreneurs to educators to athletes, because I enjoy hearing a really good success story from any discipline. But I wanted to view their story more through a lens of struggle or hardship and even failure. Because for me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow aren't from the wins or triumphs, but from the setbacks and defeat. So instead of reviewing their highlight reel with all the success and accomplishments, we'll talk about some of the bloopers that includes the mistakes and the rocky roads, which can be glossed over, but oftentimes more impactful to their mindset and success. I hope hearing their journey inspires you to not fear failing, but motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. This is the story of Tandis Urban, co-founder of The Landby, a members club that elevates the primary care experience and combines healthcare with superb hospitality. I know, that's an oxymoron, but it's true, and it's in New York. In this episode, we discuss Tandis's journey from law to documentary films to hospitality, and ultimately combining her creative passions with a personal one to make the healthcare experience better. After years of battling an autoimmune issue herself and experiencing the frustrating process of being a patient in dealing with the antiquated forms, the uncomfortable waiting room chairs and the waiting room alone, only to be rushed in and out of your actual doctor visits, she had enough and designed something that she would want to experience herself. And ta-da, the land view was born. We discuss also her frustrations and failures during the fundraising stages, and she's very honest about the life of an entrepreneur. Now, with the recent launch in New York in 2021, the first Land Bee location opened, and we discuss how she differentiates the Land Bee from your typical doctor visits and combines all the little details that you appreciate in the hospitality industry. I love it. Please enjoy this interview with the fantastic Tandis Urban. Hello, Tandis. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining. I want to say thank you to Tim Urban, who initially introduced the concept of the land view to me. I'm a big fan of his writing. And for those who haven't read it, I highly recommend his website, Wait But Why. And I've enjoyed his writing from life and career. He writes about everything. But he wrote a post earlier this year called Why Going to the Doctor Sucks. (laughs) And I had to read it because it wasn't a clickbait title. I'm sure he's going to write really thoughtfully about this. The way he described the doctor experience and going to healthcare services was so spot on in terms of the forms from 50 years ago, from the chairs that are uncomfortable, from the wait time. Also, for a very short period of time, you get to be around a doctor. So all of those things resonated. I cannot wait to hear more about the Landby, which is something that you co-founded. But before we get started on that, I'd love to rewind your highlight reel and start with the beginning. Where do you grow up? I grew up in Maryland, right outside of D.C. I was very much an only child. Had a very normal childhood. I went through a lot of different jobs that I was very, very sure I was going to have when I was little. Most notably, I thought that I was going to be a philosopher. I was like, that's a job, right? I can just do that. And then I learned that's definitely not a job. Continued to think it was a job for a long time, but not a job. I was an only child and spent a lot of time ideating by myself and creating things and taking things apart in our house and had a deep inner world as a child. I always like to ask people how they chose the university they went to and why, because what I found is you're primed to choose this major life path, and then it somehow will be solved in college because that's what our goal is as a destination, it seems. 
How did you pick the university you went to and what did you want to get out of it at the time? Two really irrelevant ways. It's such a hard choice to make when you're that age. You have so little information. You have a bunch of passed down assumptions about what college is. And then you have some very basic tour data from going there for a second. It's the weirdest thing to do. Ironically, my mom sent me to medical camp there when I was in high school, which is a type of camp that exists for all the parents listening out there. You go for a week and learn pre-pre-pre-med school stuff, and you get to suture bananas and see cadavers and do all the highlights of med school to get kids more interested in going into med school. I already knew that I wasn't going to do that, but it was a last-ditch effort. But it was at Georgetown, and I really, really loved being on campus, and I fell in love with the area and the school and the buildings. So I got it in my head that I wanted to go there on the list of jobs that I ended up not doing. I thought I was also going to be the mayor of D.C. So I felt like I needed to go to Georgetown to have more of a connection to D.C. Quickly learned that I didn't want to do that for obvious reasons. That's how I ended up going. And it was nice because it was only half an hour away from home. So I still got a lot of pump cooked meals. And so did my roommates. What did you decide to study? I studied government as my major. I minored in French and the theology. What do you do with that degree? What was your first job out of college with that? In my head at the time, I wanted to go to law school as part of this journey. I looked up online what major has the highest likelihood of getting admitted into Columbia Law School, which was the law school I decided I wanted to go to in my head. It was government. That's how I chose that major. And then obviously the mayor thing. Right out of school, I went to paralegal at Sullivan and Cromwell in New York. That's one of those right out of college, soul-crushing, corporate, icky jobs. How much time did you spend there before you realized that this might not be the path for you? I was still planning to go to law school, but I didn't want to have to work there for very long because it was a really unpleasant place to work. I worked there for a year. I left to work in documentary film for a little bit, as perhaps will come out through the rest of this hour, was always straddling between the academic and the creative and wanting to figure out which of those two paths was truer to me. And surely only one of them could be. And so I had to figure out which one it was. I was doing law to go into academia, but then I wanted to see if doing documentary film would be better, be that creative outlet. So I worked as an intern PA person on a few different projects during that year, but was applying to law school during that time, still on that path. A few people that I've interviewed, they're in the middle of law school and they said literally, no, this is not for me, even though it's just a couple of years, that wasn't the path for them. When you were interning at the documentary film What were your thoughts there? Were you thinking, I shouldn't go to law school because this is where I want to be? Or how did you think about that? I liked the projects I was working on, but I didn't love the people or the work culture. It was the first time I realized that finding your people is a really important part of the work that you want to do. That's something theoretical because when you're in school, you're only thinking about yourself within the context of your job, not any of the actual lived experience of doing the work. I realized I don't really want to spend all my time with this crew. But I definitely enjoyed working on the projects and they were healthcare related, sparked a lot of my interest in healthcare in the future. Then you actually do go to Columbia Law. What was your experience there like? Everyone on the film that I was working at were like, so what are you doing after this? I was like, law school. And they were like, that is not something we've ever heard anyone say here. That experience was so intense. It was a really rigorous intellectual experience. It taught you a whole new way of thinking. It is a really insular, intensive experience. By my second year, I knew that I wasn't going to do that. A lot of people figure that out halfway through, but I decided to stick it out for satisfaction reasons. It was unsatisfying to leave in the middle and there was still so much to learn. I think I was able to enjoy the second half a lot more than the first half because I could just be more curious and have more brain play and take the classes I really wanted to take. What do you do after you realize law is not for you, but you have this Columbia Law School degree? What next? 
right after that, I went to go work for a supper club in Brooklyn, which was the complete opposite experience, which was amazing. I needed that time to spend a long time making tea, taking walks. It was a really chill Brooklyn activity. I was mind blown that it was even allowed to do something like that. It was so fun. While I was in law school, thinking about what I wanted to do next, and I spent a lot of time in Japan right after law school, going to different restaurants and trying out different weird hotel experiences. They're the best country to go for experiential play. I was really thinking about how important hospitality was to me and how I wanted to do something in that industry. So along with the supper club, was looking into roles that would be challenging in a totally different way. As academic as law school was, you didn't really feel that live impact of the work you were doing. You didn't get to serve in the way that I wanted to serve people. Started to look for something in hospitality and ended up at this amazing startup called In-House, which was a membership club providing really great guest experiences to regulars at restaurants across the city. And what does that mean? I love restaurants, but what kind of experience did in-house provide? It was a combined help you get priority booking, help you have a better experience once you're at the restaurant. If you're a really great regular at a restaurant like Red Farm, which was one of the restaurants we worked with, now when you go to Gramercy Tavern, they also know your name. They transfer the same guest notes. There might be a card waiting for you at the table. You might get a free pour of champagne if they know you're there for a special occasion. Having that cheers, everybody knows your name feeling apply to different restaurants in our network was about the booking, about the experience, then also doing events and programming. If you're a member of MoMA and you like to go to the after hours events that they do, similar experience, but for restaurants. I'm going to look them up now. After you have this incredible experience, you went to Japan, which I already love because experience there is fantastic from restaurants, dining, pastry, all of that. When did the idea of the land bee start coming into your head and popping up? A second track that's happening this whole time is I'm dealing with this autoimmune disease in my eye, spending a lot of time at the doctor's office, spending a lot of time doing research and trying to be my own advocate and figure out what's happening, physically being at the doctor's office a lot. And as you write in this post, dealing with the weight and the unfriendly people and the chairs and smell and the hand soap, every little detail, which was so cloying when you're spending so much time there. This is my part-time job and it's the worst office ever. It's such a bad experience. At the same time, working with all these great regulars at restaurants, I remember on my way to a doctor's appointment, taking a bottle of wine for my doctor for the holidays and feeling like I'm a regular here in the same way our members are regulars at these restaurants. Why doesn't that same level of high-touch hospitality exist in this other arguably much more important service industry where what is at stake is your health? We should be treated with the utmost respect and the greatest hospitality. And yet we're getting the worst service we get across any service industry. And it was an appalling concept. I was spending so much time with these great restaurateurs who were thinking about what side of your wrist does somebody see when you put the plate down? How do we greet somebody? Danny Meyer is saying, we never say, how are we doing at this table? You're not sitting at the table. Every single little word choice, so thought through. It's so not the case in healthcare. I started thinking about it in that context and also thinking about where I felt like I really had something to add to the conversation. And whereas I loved working in hospitality, I felt like they were doing just fine and there wasn't a really big gap or a really huge need, I could throw my restaurant idea into the ring, but it wasn't going to move the needle. Whereas it felt like I really had something to say in the conversation on healthcare and hospitality. It finally crystallized. It was just so cheesy and stereotypical, but it was a total shower idea where I came out of the shower and got out my notebook and I was like, it's going to have this and this and this and this. We're going to have nap pods, merry-go-round, and you know, just all these things that obviously are no longer part of the product. Getting to have that fun brainstorm of this is what a great doctor's office could look like. There were models out there and there are models out there. We're not the only ones in the space, but I wasn't aware of any of those places yet. So it was just from scratch. What could this look like? 
I know we had a prior conversation, but I love very simply that you said, I have something new to say in healthcare. And I love the vision that you're pursuing. What is the Lambie? Where did the name come from? What does it mean? The Lambie is a made up name. We did a lot of different name ideating. And one of the things we were doing is looking at old doctors and famous literature. And we came across this patient, Lambert. He was a hypochondriac, worried well patient. And we shortened that to Lambie, added a the in front of it because we really wanted to have more of that elevated hotel feel and less of a medical name. And then the domain name was available, Match Made in Heaven. I've since learned that Lambie is a type of buoy. So I'm still looking for the work in for that how I can get a life rafty buoy analogy, but it's not quite working right now. You'll get there. The mission I love is twofold. If you could expand on both the care and the delivery. The way we started was going and making a list of every single thing that's wrong with going to the doctor's office. For me, a lot of those things fell into the delivery, the experience of it. And for my partner, Chloe, a lot of it was in the care coordination and the lack of good, high quality care. Those things are super interrelated, but to dig in a little more deeply on the care side, it's how do we provide care that's more continuous, that's more comprehensive, that doesn't look at primary care on a very basic level, but includes nutrition and wellness and patient care coordination, taking the work out of getting well. On the delivery side, how do we deliver that in a way that gets patients excited about going to the doctor? That makes it not only low friction, not icky and long waits and unfriendly people, but also actively enjoyable so that people go to the doctor more often than they would think to go. And that can have huge effects on health outcomes to get people more invested in their preventive health. We've seen this huge shift in the wellness industry in the past few decades and more recently in the past decade of people becoming more educated about health and wellness and getting more excited about the coolness of wellness. That's really great. There's a little bit of danger in that. And we want to help people sift through the noise of what's real and what's not. But generally, we're in this upswing of people understanding health a little bit better We want to have that apply not just in wellness, but also in medicine, medicine. When you think about building the Lambi, how did you do it? Did you say, let's find the care providers first? Did you say, let's create the three-pronged approach of not only the care, but also the wellness advisor, the concierge? What did you start with first? First, it was, what do we care about as patients before we even got to primary care? What's really missing right now? We feel like primary care is wildly underutilized. We want that home base for health. The reason it's underutilized is right now you go, it's unpersonalized, you don't have a lot of time with the doctor. Yeah, you shouldn't go to a traditional one because you're not getting that much out of it. How do we make this value properly useful so that people have a real quarterback for their health? And we wanted to start with the thing that we felt like everybody needed. Everybody should have a good primary care doctor. And in cities that you and I live in, often people skip straight to a specialist when you need somebody who has that full picture. We first thought, okay, primary care. What does real primary care look like? What's missing from it right now? We had many different iterations of that three-person care team model, and there was four, and then there was three, and there was two, figuring out who exactly is part of the model. And then it was, what other adjacent products do we offer here? Do we have things on site? Do we refer out? How big is the space? So starting to build out our financial model, thinking about what the price point was going to look like. We did all of this concept building before we did anything else. And we started right before COVID. So we also had the luxury of having all this time Doctors were not available to get on the phone because they were in crisis mode at work. We were in our own little pot stewing and thinking about what we wanted to do. It's a luxury that I think a lot of companies don't have to get to just sit and think for so long. That was definitely how we started. How did you meet your co-founder, Chloe? I had been working on the project for just a short amount of time, and I was in a yes to all meetings mode. I had a friend who said, I know somebody who's super into this topic as well. Of the reasons people have asked me to meet with somebody that they're just into the topic was random to me. But I was like, sure, whatever. 
we met for coffee and immediately clicked, immediately started sharing our patient stories with each other, immediately started talking about the company. She had so many incredible ideas that I hadn't thought of that were informed by her patient experience. She was so passionate about nutrition and wellness and was so educated on it. Such an unbelievable treasure. And when I first started the company, I thought I'd rather be single than in a bad marriage. And I'll do this alone if I have to. It'd be great to find a co-founder. But everything I'd read was like, you'd have to know one from when you're little or happen to find one. That sounds really hard. But I got extraordinarily lucky to meet her and lucky to find somebody who wanted to work in the exact same ways that I did on this project. The concierge managers, all her creation based on her patient experience. You have to go with your gut in these situations, but we also did a fair amount of diligence because it's tough when you're meeting somebody from scratch. So we did a lot of questionnaires, founder questions, like where do you see the company going? How would you want to exit? What's your work style? What temperature do you like it to be in the room when you're working? How do you deal with conflict? Then once we felt like we had worked through that, we ended with the 36 questions to fall in love in the New York Times. It's a list of questions that's supposed to accelerate a date. We met at Dumbo House. We had some drinks. We went through these 36 questions. It culminates in four minutes of uninterrupted eye contact where nobody's allowed to speak. You can blink, but you can't speak. And that cemented it. After that, we decided we're in love. We're doing this. I have so many more questions about this four-minute eye exchange. Is there a lot of laughing involved? Almost all laughter. And nobody wants to be the one to break it either. You've decided that you're doing it. You should decide what different levels of laughter you want to do throughout so you don't totally lose it. And I think that's part of why it works, induces laughter. When you interviewed the primary care physician, the wellness advisor, and the other members on your team, did they go through the same survey and have similar visions? Or was it an interview process where you went with your gut of who was the best member for the LANV? We did a shortened version of that. We pulled some questions from the work style stuff. We pulled some questions from 36 questions to fall in love. But the final interview is always a personality questionnaire of different things. Like if you were in a movie, what movie world would you live in? What's your best find? What are you famous for among your friends? Getting people to give us a better sense of their personality, because again, this is a service industry. We also always do a take-home assessment that mimics the real work that they'll have to do. Getting a sense of typical interview stuff and then personality and then actual work product is the trifecta of an interview. I know that a few months ago, you guys had the first opening, which is fantastic. And I saw pictures of it. It looks beautiful. And it is the environment in which I could imagine the elevated experience you wanted to have. Tell me before September, when the office first opened, what the meetings were like to fundraise. You had mentioned there's a lot of people that are out there doing this. What was the fundraising like, the experience of sharing with others your vision for the Land V? We're both first-time founders, and we did things in the order that we felt very sure that we could do it in. You read all of the advice, and you're like, yeah, but that's those companies, and we're going to do it our way, the way that we think we should do it. We're going to do it all right the first time. So we spent a lot of time building out assets that we thought would help us in fundraising because we felt very much like there is no MVP for this product. You can either blow it out and do it the right way or not. The MVP is much harder for this product than a piece of software where you can have 20 people you know test it. You need the providers, you need the space, you need the medical equipment, the licensing. There wasn't a quick and dirty way to test this all out. We thought in lieu of that, we'll have our brand assets. We'll have a click-through prototype of our app. We'll have renderings of what the space will look like, vision of here's what it will look like as soon as you give us the money that we clearly deserve to have. And then went out to start fundraising and realized that that was not necessarily the best use of the money. That's first time cost of doing business that we always laugh at ourselves for, but a great learning experience and allowed us to marinate more. 
went out and realized people really wanted to see how this thing functioned. Could we get the buy-in from the providers? Could we make this three-person care team model work? Because it's not something that's been done before in that exact model. And back to the drawing board and thought, how do we get a smaller version of this off the ground that still conveys our vision? What can we cut? What can we be bootstrappy about? All the questions we should have asked ourselves the first time. Once we did that, we were able to raise primarily from our own members. The Lambie is almost entirely member-funded, which is something we're super proud of, and it was not a direction we were originally planning to go in. Our tagline, which is by patients for patients, we never wanted to lose sight of the customer, in this case, who's not just the consumer of the product, but also the customer of the product in our model, who are the members. To have members who get to own a stake in their practice was cool and exciting for us. It's truly a pleasure to have members on board as investors. We have a member advisory board where we meet with them to get their feedback, which is the most useful feedback because they're actual consumers of the product. We found it a lot easier to fundraise from people who understood the pressure points we were talking about enough to join the club and who were patients just like we were, who wanted to see a better future for healthcare. That was a very interesting fundraising process. Have you ever read the book, The Messy Middle by Scott Belsky? No. He's an entrepreneur and he's quite prolific, but he wrote this book and it talks about the ride of entrepreneurship and how it is a hot mess internally. But he says when he looks back upon it, he talks about the process in hindsight. It's both this mindset of survival and also self-discovery. You're trying to get to the next phase, but also you're thinking and learning so much more about yourself. The way you're articulating is quite positive, but I'm sure it was a lot less interesting and just tough, to be honest. While you're going through it, there's something romantic about the whole thing. You're in that phase that everyone talks about where everybody says no to your idea that you're just supposed to ride through. I'm going to look back on this and feel like those were the days. I think being a founder requires a balance of delusional optimism that this is going to work and that it really should work, but also ability to take feedback and know what you're doing that needs to be iterated on. One of the best pieces of advice that I've gotten is be inflexible about your mission, but be flexible about how you get there. Speaking of feedback, the first location is opened in September, and I remember seeing a post on social media that was so great. Someone had left the office, and they were holding a cappuccino, and they're like, this is how I love going to the doctor. It is this elevated experience. But now that you've had a few months of getting that feedback, how's it going? What are some of the things you've learned in the last few months after it's officially launched? It's been so great. We feel so lucky how well the launch has been going, and it's such a pleasure to finally meet members. These are people who think exactly like us and like to complain about the same things. So they appreciate the same things that we fix in the experience. There's something really nice about doing brick and mortar as challenging as it is because you get to go into a physical space and see your team and watch the product at work. There were definitely a lot of behind the scenes kinks. I likened it to a wedding where as long as the guests don't know what's going wrong, the bride will always have things that she'll complain about forever. There are things like that, but nothing that on our end, at least we feel has really impacted the patient experience. So it's been great learning how to actually operate this thing, fly this plane, but it's been nice. At the Land Now, there's how many primary care physicians, how many wellness advisors and concierge, but what does the staffing look like? So stripping it back down to the smallest MVP, quote unquote, that we could have right now, we're operating with one care team. So one physician, one wellness advisor, one concierge manager. Then we have us, we have the office manager, we have our MA, and that's the full team in the space right now. We're practicing it with one care team before we bring on a second care team next year. It's been a good experiment to work out all the kinks with one core crew right now, our founding team. And it's interesting when your founding team also is the service that you're offering. It's an interesting balance. We had to find people who were willing to not only do the role, but also be part of a startup, which is not always what clinical superstars are used to doing. 
we feel very lucky with the team that we've put together. Can you share the difference between the wellness advisor and the concierge member? What are the two roles there? The wellness advisor is a registered dietitian. She provides nutritional guidance, but also sleep, exercise, lifestyle, general. That's your wellness guru person. Concierge manager is your healthcare best friend. If you picture what your mom used to do for you when you would go to the doctor's office, that's what she's there to help you do. So that's record consolidation. That's coordinating all your referrals. When you text us, that's the first person you're talking to. She's triaging all the messages. That's the person who's thinking during the appointment. That patient doesn't like when it's cold in the office. I'm going to make sure that we bring the space heater in for them. It's that patient's birthday. Let's make sure we have a healthy cupcake waiting for them when they come in. The person who has the time and bandwidth to think about the patient as a full person and look at, think about their full picture. We feel like those are the three legs of the stool of primary care. There's the medicine, there's the wellness, and there's the patient admin. And when we strip down all those things in our Google Doc into categories, those are the three things you need to do primary care well. We don't see the patient coordination services or the wellness services as add-ons to primary care. They are the primary care as well. I remember listening to an interview that the founder of DoorDash did, and he talked about the early phases of building the business and getting customer loyalty. Little things remind me of the way that you're describing the concierge service, where if in the early days of food delivery at DoorDash, they remembered it was someone's birthday or in their profile, they mentioned that they would give a balloon or an extra this or that. And that was during the feedback, what people remembered and what brought them back and gave them the ability to tell other people, hey, this service DoorDash is great. I could only imagine what it's like to have an appointment at the Land B with all the things that you're talking about, where it's so far just a really bad experience and process for me <laughs> in my personal experience that I would then say, oh my gosh, I went to this one place and it was just amazing for X, Y, Z reasons. Just starting from the concierge care, I could see how that is already so elevated. There are so many great examples of this in the hospitality industry, and it's taken so long for it to come into the healthcare sector. So we're really excited to get to surprise and delight our patients like that. Two things I remember the stats that stuck out with me in the Tim Urban post, and one was that the average appointment wait time in the U.S. is about 24 days, which was mind-boggling to me. The other is when he unpacked your business model of both the care and the delivery, how the care is not really the big issue because once you see the doctor, you do get some of your questions answered, but it's the idea that it's in the customer service and how 96% of the complaints from patients was about the service. I love how you're focusing on the delivery side. Problem is without good delivery, none of the care stuff can get done. Longer appointments, shorter wait times, faster turnaround are all part of the delivery that allow for good primary care to actually happen. And patients notice the service. It's just that there's nobody responsive to it right now because while patients are the consumer of that healthcare, they're not really the customer of that healthcare. They're the employers, the insurers, all these other major players who are the real payers in the system. The physicians aren't incentivized to solve the customer service problems, nor are they trained to do it, nor do they really have the time to do it. Because of that model, they're also losers in this game where they have to take on way too many patients and think about volume over quality. And so we like to think of this as we're solving a problem both on the provider side and on the patient side. I'm looking forward to seeing the land be grow and hearing all the wonderful positive stories about the service there. If you don't mind, I'd love to switch over to the questions I ask all my guests. Let's do it. Who or what inspires you? I feel like I've harped on this a lot now, but really good service inspires me so much. I love to hear stories about moments of surprise and delight in the hospitality industry. I remember reading this article about 11 Madison Park and how they always preserve 5% of their budget toward blowing it out of the water, which is so cool and a luxury that fine dining gets to have. I don't think all surprise and delight has to cost money. It can be just about being thoughtful in those little moments. But 
an example that does cost money that delighted me was these two kids who were at EMP for dinner, which is, first of all, already such a luxury for them, but they'd never seen snow before. The team went out and got two sleds and an Uber to Central Park for them after the dinner for them to go sledding. Such a cool thing to be able to create that for somebody that doesn't fall into any one neat category of service delivery, but it's how weird can we get here? And those moments inspire me to do all the little things. You mentioned you spent a lot of time in Japan. For me, that's the country that personifies that. Speaking of ideas or examples of best in class, is there a business or a person or figure who does it so well that you're inspired by either fashion, business, retail? I'm curious if there is a profile or a business that you're like, that is some of the best of the best. Japan is a country overall. Danny Meyer, we have 10 copies of his book, Setting the Table, in our office. Everybody who works at the Lambie gets a copy, but we also just have copies for members to take home in our lending library. Every example that's in there about enlightened hospitality and about how to build your team to care about customer service in a different way is insane. The idea of being an agent and not a gatekeeper and making rules, but finding ways to break them for people is inspiring. In terms of a company, I think Warby Parker has done an incredible job of taking the principles of that industry and applying it to an industry where you would otherwise find it random and boring. Turning glasses shopping into an activity where I've had friends ask me, do you want to come with me? I'm going to Warby Parker to get glasses. Obviously, that should be a totally boring thing to do, but it's a fun activity because they build so much joy into the experience. There's pencils and there's gumballs, a photo booth, even the design of the store and the way people talk to you in there. They built an experience out of going glasses shopping that you can't explain in a deck. It's just that authentic joy that they know how to create because they had fun with it. What are you most proud of so far? Patient feedback and having people say that they had fun at the doctor's office. I'm so proud every time I hear somebody say that. And I'm really proud of the wallpaper in our bathroom every time somebody says they like that. It's yellow with zebras all over it. And that is really important to me. (laughs) One question I've added more recently is about luck, because one listener said, I would love to hear what they think about luck in their life. Good luck, bad luck, whether it's personal or professional. But I want to throw out there and see what your opinion is of luck. That's a fun question. I've had an extreme amount of luck just in the situation that I was born into. Already, I'm like eight out of 10 on luck there. In some ways, COVID was lucky for us. And the timing where we were within our business, we were lucky we didn't have a lease yet. We were lucky we needed to be in that ideation phase during that. We were lucky it changed the way people think about their health in a more heightened way. More than I think that we were lucky in how the business started, I think we weren't unlucky. We didn't get super unlucky with anything. I ask all my guests, just given the name of the show, a lot about failure and struggles and ultimately growth. I'd love to hear one of the most impactful failure or growth moments that you can share. Definitely the fundraising experience. I'm sure that's not a unique answer in the people that you interview. So I wish I had something more exciting, but my partner and I are both used to things going well. We laugh about how unbelievably humbling the fundraising experience is. Yeah, of course, this is going to go fine. And you hear all these stories, but you hear stories about everything and we'll just be fine. And you go through it and you're like, yeah, that's people's real money. It's not just a handout. Going through that experience, getting to talk to such brilliant investors and getting such great feedback. We feel lucky that we got to pitch to so many great companies and so many great funds. Learning what we needed to actually show in the next round of fundraising, which we're doing in just a couple of months. So get back to me on my second biggest learning moment. Being at this turning point and realizing we're currently not funded. We have so much put into this. We don't want to fall prey to the sunk cost fallacy, but we really think we have something here and we really think this needs to exist. How do we make this work? 
pivoting from the traditional fundraising strategy to that member fundraising strategy, which in many ways was so much better for us and more meaningful and special to us, was one of the greatest moments where we felt like you can turn things around and you can make lemonade out of lemons and use a challenge to your advantage. It's all about the recovery. We spoke in a prior conversation, and I love how you track it too. I spent a lot of time researching Airbnb when we first started this company because I think they're so inspirational in how they did things. Plus, one of their decks is free online. Always look back. I'm like, is this as okay as the Airbnb deck? I remember hearing in an interview that they had done 60 pitches and they'd all failed. It was 60 until they got someone. I had that number in my head. You have to do so many pitches to make this thing work. You have so many great conversations and investors you'd love to work with and so many total waste of time conversations in there as well. I had this metric in my head that that's what I had to do. I don't know where that number falls within other people's rankings, but it was definitely a high number. I love that you then pivoted and whether it's fundraising meetings or the feedback, ultimately something changes. And so I love the membership model. What does it look like now? We were able to fundraise from a large portion of our members and we got so much interest from our members to invest in the company. What was amazing was that once we opened up membership and then offered people to invest through our members, we closed within two weeks after fundraising for eight or nine months. It's one of those things, once you crack, all the dominoes finally fall. We closed off our membership to a wait list because we wanted to be able to onboard our members in methodical fashion, learn along the way about how long it actually takes to onboard our members and make sure that our early members got really good access to appointment times. Now that we've onboarded those members, we've opened up our membership to new people to sign up. That's been really fun. It's been so great to get to know these early birds who signed up for our club before we had a location, before we had a doctor who just read that article like you did and agreed with the patient experiment that we were trying to create. They'll always hold a very special place in our hearts. I know you have one new member coming because it's a friend of mine, Amanda. She's a three-time cancer survivor, and she had met Chloe out and had bonded and said, of all my experiences going to all the hospitals, this sounds like a delight. So I know she's going to sign up after getting off the waiting list. Another question that a listener had suggested to me is about success. When you ask generically what success means to a lot of people, you could hear the boilerplate answers of doing good, creating impact. It's really never about the money. But in actuality, if you look at the time spent, it's more focused on the commas and the zeros in a balance sheet versus true impact. I'd just be curious what success means for you. I have a very specific notion of what it would look like for me. I'm always blown away with how much people just take it in the medical industry. Like, yeah, I never really thought about how long the waits were. I'm like, you didn't? It's infuriating to me every single time I'm in there how much my time is being wasted. And they're like, I guess I don't get that much time with my doctor or that front desk really is unfriendly. If I could move the needle with the expectations that people have around going to the doctor, then I think we will have succeeded at the Lambie. I want people to think differently about how they should be treated as a patient. Want them to get more annoyed when they're at the doctor's office. We've had some patients who send us waiting room selfies when they've been in the waiting room a long time. I'm like, yes, this is the energy that we need to bring. That shift in consumer demand and expectations can move this industry forward. There's so much opportunity for so many different iterations of things like the Lambie to come out and help patients have better access to direct care. My hope for the Lambie is that it sets higher expectations for patients. Even you describing your business model already elevates my level of thinking because I admittedly go to the doctor after the fact. When something is hurt or I'm injured, I don't focus on the wellness part, whether it's the sleep or nutrition and all the things I know make me healthier. I don't think about it as much. It's the idea of getting that personal care, sign up for this appointment or that appointment, that concierge service. I just love the concept of. 
What's next for Tandis? You talked about the land being your goals there, but what's next for you personally? They're so intertwined. The goal for the Lambie would be to open up 20 of these across the country and make ourselves the leading voice in the conversation around patient experience and patient care, expanding into things outside of primary care, but crush primary care first, continuing to be not just a company, but hopefully a thought leader in that industry. Where can people find out more about you and the Lambie? At thelambie.com. And you would think that's an easy thing to spell, but apparently it is not, which we messed up in our naming, but it's the L-A-N-B-Y. Wonderful. And I'll make sure to link it to the show notes. Well, Tandis, thank you so much. I had a blast learning more about the Lambie and also about your journey. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. 